Welcome to another episode of the Latin American Studies podcast series. My name is Raul Diego Rivera Hernandez, and I'm the director of the Latin American Studies program at Villanova University, an associate professor in the Spanish program. Today, we have a wonderful guest that I'm very proud to present. His name is Jorge Cuellar, and he's a Mellon faculty fellow and assistant professor in the Latin American, Latino and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College. Jorge is an interdisciplinary scholar who focuses on the politics and daily life of modern Central America. He's informed by social theory and his research emphasizes the life affirming initiatives taking place in worlds characterized by social fragmentation, generalizing security and environmental degradation by highlighting struggles that interrupt the violent logics that produce precarity, displacement, dispossession and everyday death. Jorge Cuellas' writing has appeared in different academic and public venues, such as El Faro, NACLA, Social Text Periscope, Los Angeles Review of Books, and Radical History Reviews, The Abusable Past. He's working on a book project whose tentative title it is Everyday Life and Everyday Date in the Salvadoran Life World. Jorge, welcome to our Latin American Studies podcast series. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you, Raul, for the kind invitation um, to talk on the podcast. I'm really excited to, to talk with you about Central uh, and the recent lecture that I gave at Villanova. Thank you. So today, before we start discussing your, your book, uh, I think it's a good idea to start with a brief history of the field of Central American studies in the United States. And, and I think you are the right person that we can ask this question. So can, can you tell us how it started and, and why there was such a resistance from the universities in, in the United States to integrate the Central American studies in their curriculum? That's a, that's a really great question and, and, and one that can take me you know, in so many different directions. But what I wanna say is that Central American studies is a discrete field and as a, as a discrete field is a relatively recent phenomenon um, and that contains within it different regional specificities in the United States. So while now it, it's increasingly kind of elastic and denotes all academic studies present and past of Central America and its people, it's largely something that comes through the various fields of ethnic studies in the United States. So here I'm thinking about black studies, diaspora studies, different forms of Latin American studies, Chicano studies and Caribbean studies um, in the last two decades. Um, but really Central American studies is a kind of changing dynamic endeavor with a complex intellectual agenda um, that it's, that's anchored in place-based questions shaped by being in different parts of the US. Uh, it's largely incubated for the past couple of decades in Chicano study spaces, American studies programs, um, and these related communities and informed directly by activism uh, and community input and dialogue. Um, so in some sense, uh, Central American studies has had many midwives. Um, the majority of Central American studies today is concerned with contemporary issues or phenomena that require historical, anthropological, sociological, literary, and theoretical research to explore. And my sense is that Central American studies is largely a response to these more current concerns, reinterpreting history and looking towards the archive 
for understanding the present, the impacts of capitalism, racism, settler formations, incarceration, migration, and so on. Um, and there's also kind of a, a turn to the colonial archive recently happening um, and works that are sort of in production. As for the, the resistance from universities part of the question, I really can't say that Central American studies was a kind of resistant formation, but I will say that it was being shaped and kind of gestated within these other established departments and institutionalized fields like Chicano studies, like the ethnic studies, where, uh, you know, very early on, for example, I'll speak to my own biography. One of the first experiences of Central American studies for me came in a Chicano studies course um, taught by um, the late Horacio Roque Ramirez um, in a class called Central American Studies. Um, and this was, um, you know, in 2000, 2006, it's my first encounter. Um, already, uh, even in this moment, there was a sense of like, that there's enough work to make a syllabus out of Central American Studies um, and Central American scholarship that was really attending uh, to the questions of indigeneity, the Central American civil wars, race, gender, mobility, trauma, and even spirituality that were, uh, that were only possible through a kind of direct engagement with the history and culture of Central America. And this was my first time sort of experiencing this. So it was like a revelation. Uh, and where I locate my personal starting point for Central American studies. Um, and while in relationship to the other area studies that are in the university, um, and this can be, you know, sort of the globe and how it was partitioned um, through these kinds of Cold War formations of Latin American studies, Middle Eastern studies, Asian studies, and so on. Um, I felt like Central America was a kind of marginal periphery within even Latin American studies. Um, and, and it was kind of doomed in some sense to repeat the insights of those fields, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, Mexican American studies, Caribbean studies, or South American studies. Um, but I felt like Central American studies was posing new challenges to scholarship um, and offering new frameworks suited to the peculiarity or to the specificity of contemporary Central American existence, struggle, and living in the region as both a national issue and a transnational one that was in many ways interpolated by the United States. Um, I remember back in the day, we were relying very heavily on, um, you know, that brief history of Central America by Hector Perez Brignoli, um, which is a still very useful text, but it just demonstrated the kinds of works that we necess necessarily had to engage with um, to do study into Central America. Um, but nowadays, you know, there, there's a wide array of different uh, genres, disciplines, um, and interventions in, in this kind of very vibrant and dynamic field of Central American studies. But even from the beginning, um, and this gets to the kind of, well, what is Central American studies? I always have considered it a kind of recovery project, one where uh, it's about telling stories and inserting narratives and accounts evidence into historical and present archive that has largely privileged other kinds of material documents and national or even national like mythologies and sensibilities 
that erase the stories of the subjected. So what, what I mean by this is kind of thinking about migrants, thinking about indigenous people, thinking about Afro-descendants or black people, thinking about uh, the working class, thinking about um, poor and marginalized communities that often weren't the center of the kinds of histories and anthropological studies that were uh, uh, kind of the foundation of what came before what today we call Central American studies. Um, so, uh, you know, and for me, like the way I entered into Central American studies uh, was a, as a way to understand myself as a product of history, culture, and struggle, you know, through resistance, migration, politics, and inequality. And I find that to be the case with, you know, students today who are finding their pathway into thinking, into the serious thinking and academic study of Central America um, precisely via this route. You know, um, and so the emergence of Central American studies today is really a historical kind of phenomenon, really, where, you know, cohorts of young uh, Central American scholars and scholars interested in the critical engagement of the region um, are graduating in, with PhDs, with masters, you know, in the, the kind of 1000s to 2010s and into the present, um, at the same time, right, that you know, uh, empire, violence, racism, policing, detention is, is reaching consistently new, new levels of brutality. And I think that has been one of the kind of focal points of Central American studies today and one of the major interventions that, 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 that kind of rethinking Central America um, for kind of to understand the political economy of the hemisphere has been so troubling and, and kind of uh, difficult to domesticate into the various areas and, and um, pre-existing intellectual formations. Um, and this to me is the vibrancy and the kind of powerful impetus of Central American studies in, in making these kinds of uh, interventions and, and kind of modeling um, interdisciplinarity um, and in a way that is responsive to the dehumanization, the expulsion, the violence against those groups that it is interested in, 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 in exploring. One of the, of the main questions that you have been discussing in, in your research and in your current book project, Everyday Life and Everyday Death in the Salvadoran life world is how people continue living within a series of disaster scenarios or disastrous scenarios in Central America. And, and you speak about the social fragmentation, uh, the, the topic that, that we have been discussing more and more, which is the generalized insecurity. And you also are pointing to the environmental degradation in, in Central America. You have been discussing the effects of the previous uh, hurricanes in the region, but also the latest one that um, were experienced by Central American countries in 2020. So my, my question is, and, and, and the way you're framing all these questions around the disaster studies framework is, is how this disaster studies framework orienting the study of your book or orienting the main ideas of, of your book on Central America? Yeah, thank you for, for that question. So, and this one's really important for me. Um, and I think that it's really sort of building on the last question for the field in general. 
So many Central Americans, diasporas, children of migrants still have family back in the region and often travel there all the time. You know, they're in, in, in economic relationships with their family back in origin countries. In addition to having this kind of tie through emotion, through care, through interconnection. And so it, I always try to remember uh, why Central America, while yes, it's pushing you know, many migrants to, to leave the region into the corridor, moving towards the US or increasingly to you know, Costa Rica and Panama, um, still remains a place that's populated, very overpopulated um, with people seeking to remain in place and to live in those countries. Um, these communities for me like live in a, in a disastered environment that has deep historical and colonial continuities, um, but they continue to improvise, practice and develop strategies to carve dignified life in these spaces of you know, catastrophe and social fragmentation. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in this question um, in that, in that this, in this terrain of, of Central America and specifically El Salvador, where my, my book is um, attending to as a place where kind of some problems are being worked out and how we might imagine uh, Central America's future outside or beyond this kind of quagmire. You know, so, so how might, for me at least, the concept or the analytic of disaster itself serve as a kind of humanist version of, of thinking how people do crisis management, right? How are they negotiating all these, you know, wide array of insecurities all the way from food insecurity that's linked to environmental degradation and climate change um, and, um, and corporate agriculture, all the way to gutting of public education and how that's linked to uh, the, gut, the, the kind of uh, total defunding of, of uh, any kind of social welfare for people and all these kinds of issues that arise around dignity and, 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 um, and habitability in, in the region. And so the question of disaster, um, as I discussed in the lecture and that you, you mentioned, um, is one that offers a kind of transhistorical uh, point of view to understand the ongoing logics of precarity, of violence, of exploitation and harm that have wrecked the living fabrics of Central America. And so today's expression of land defense, of post-hurricane recovery um, after Eta and Iota, or even the social movements to protect water and vulnerable individuals is a symptom of this interminable sense of crisis, a kind of I try to think about it as a kind of accum an accumulation of disaster scenarios. Um, and so, um, and I'm searching for, for a kind of framework that, is, that allows us to really think our way um, or explore the ways that people's everyday activities are themselves the site of not only survival, but of resilience strategies and of ways of imagining how to um, inhabit a world that is uh, in many ways, very dismembered and ruined and wasted. Um, and in many cases, as migration tells us, offers very little um, for social reproduction and for well-being, right? And so, you know, I, I constantly bump up into this problem of, of how the even the vocabularies 
of anti-capitalism and, and, and the critique of capital, while totally fundamental, um, for instance, continues to tell us what we already know, right? And that, um, and that what this kind of conceptual cul-de-sac really asks us to do is to find other potential political grammars to capture this kind of emergent dynamism uh, that's happening in, on the terrain of the everyday, but is often obscured or invisible because of the disaster itself. And so I, I, I look to scholars like Veronica Gago, um, um, you know, who think about popular economies or, you know, feminist geographers that, that have analyzed um, community economies as kind of sites where, where complex formations and socialities um, become visible. Right as kind of non-capitalist forms of life, uh, and and this is to me a very kind of interesting um, intellectual agenda to to think our way out of this kind of crisis discourse or disaster discourse um, in a kind of critical way that uh, values and really um, integrates the everyday practices of marginalized communities um, to understand not only the the parameters of of this world that is um, that is that is um, under so many different kinds of harms, but ways that people are trying to to work themselves out of it. Um, and to me, this this is a really important intervention. I mean, I'm looking towards also, uh, you know, critical theory, for example, has also actually trended towards thinking this very problem again, such as in the work of uh, Rahel Yaegi. Um, and other kinds of social philosophers. Now, very interested in putting, you know, the sort of the social text of Central America and El Salvador in conversation with that, um, uh, because you know, sort of the the, the case studies or um, even the analytical attention placed uh, or given to um, you know marginal uh, areas of study like uh, and specifically El Salvador is not really in conversation. Um, as kind of examples or exemplary sites of analysis to to critical theory um, and to just theory in general um, and to analysis in general. Um, so for me, this is like a fundamental um, sort of social question um, in thinking about disaster, the experience of disaster as socio-historical, but also ecological, um, as, a, as, a, as a way to think about both the natural and the man-made as constituting disaster itself, right? Because I think it offers a prism to really think through uh, Central America critically and with a, with a kind of a, um, a sense of the vernacular, the mundane, the everyday, but also capturing that sense of scale and how those different kind of logics of extraction, exploitation um, hit the ground in Central America and in specific communities. And so the work that the book tries to do is really focusing on these kinds of practices that resist the logics of alienation, of displacement, right, and giving political character or, or reading the political content of these crisis responsive practices um, in El Salvador, but also in, in Central America more broadly, as I, as I did in the lecture with, with many of the kind of mutual aid or recovery efforts that, that people um, improvised um, 
instance where the state was either neglectful or entirely absent. I wanted to, to ask you and, and jump again with, with the concept of the dignified life that we discussed in, in previous conversations. And, and you told me in that time that, that the concept for a dignified life for the communities that you were interviewing, for the communities that you were meeting with is completely different to the idea of a dignified life for the state. So can, can you explain like this, this difference? Because I think it's, it's, it's really important due to the kind of projects that you're tracing as part of this everyday life in, in, in El Salvador. You know, for, for instance, um, so in the, in the larger book, I, I look at discrete impacts of you know, ongoing disaster, um, many that are driven by financialization, by the gutting of social welfare, or by kind of determined by elite-led politics that have a certain notion of what it means to have a dignified life, have social and economic opportunity or mobility, um, but, in, but in, in, a, in a very real and embodied sense, um, these discourses tend to produce or have historically produced the very things that uh, people are struggling against. And what I mean by this is things like food insecurity, you know, generalized violence as a result of state violence and, and gang violence, um, the elimination of social safety nets, right? So these kinds of um, kind of state discourses to um, describe things like poverty or misery um, as kind of uh, uh, elements of policymaking don't really correspond to, to some of the visions and objectives that communities have, uh, uh, communities have and want to attain in, in their everyday lives. And so, for example, in one, of the, in one of the chapters, I really think about um, what dignity means in the sense of, uh, in the experience of everyday death. And here, everyday death for me is this kind of way to understand um, the generalized crisis of, of violence and harm that affects just about every Salvadoran in the national territory. And so formulating that concept of everyday death, I focus on, on diverse practices like, uh, you know, agroecology, political education, forensic work, everyday act of commuting, you know, from going from one place to the other, to weave an analysis of how, you know, Salvadoran reality itself, life, the concept of life, you know, or dignified life to, to be more specific as a kind of concept, as a mode of being, um, and a kind of subaltern will has, has entered into disrepair. So in the first instance, the, what, what I tried to do is explain, you know, the political and cultural economy of a country still haunted by colonialism, by the civil war, you know, battered by a kind of very ruthless model of accumulation that, that, that has suffocated uh, ways of making a living um, and, and attaining a dignified life in the country, right? It has, really, it has really enclosed what those possibilities for having a dignified life are. So for a young person in, in El Salvador, it's you sort of go through public education, which is very limited in what it can provide for you um, to a job that's either in the maquila, at the call center, or uh, you know, as a kind of informal laborer, in a kind of peasant agricultural economy or working as an informal laborer on the bus or in a marketplace, right? Which are very, uh, 
very challenging and precarious forms of work. And so what this ends up doing, this very enclosure, is creating the need and even the desire, right, to migrate um, and to go elsewhere. And this thinking of the popular life way used to be uh, totally different. If there was kinds of investments in education, um, in professionalization, towards other kinds of career objectives, the, that kind of labor terrain would look totally different, right? This kind of um, sort of uh, labor drain that is happening due to migration would look much differently. People would be migrating for totally different things. They wouldn't be necessarily kind of circumscribed or, or pigeonholed into being, you know, surplus laborers, um, expendable by capital. Um, but in fact, they would be, uh, you know, sort of valuable contributors to the development or to the growth or to the well-being of the national territory as a whole. But that dynamic is totally severed, has totally been destroyed. And I think about that through the question of food, through the question of education, through the kind of infrastructure of, of in-country transportation, and how all those things really um, are fundamental uh, pillars to the very idea of life uh, and the social in the country. And without those very elements sort of working in a kind of functional way, there is very little possibility to ever restore, uh, you know, this kind of capacity to, um, to, uh, to make a living or to have a life or to acquire, acquire dignified life uh, in, in a country like El Salvador. I'm wondering also if, if you could tell us a little bit more about these uh, new forms of resistance and collective organization that you have been tracing that are more recent, like connected, for example, with the COVID pandemic in, in El Salvador. Uh, you have been writing like really interesting articles uh, regarding the response of the president Bukele to the, to the pandemic, this, this kind of very um, tight control over the population through different types of politics. So I'm, so I'm wondering how these kind of forms of resistance and collective organization emerge within a content, within a context that is very much surveilled, authoritarian, and, and pretty much trying to control the bodies and the movement and displacement of people in, in El Salvador. Yeah, so, you know, the pandemic has been its own kind of social and political interrupter in Central America. And, and you know, it requires, I've tried to at least, give it some sustained analysis and how the pandemic has been, you know, cover, as you already mentioned, for a kind of growth of authoritarianism, you know, the growth of a kind of carceral state, of border imperialism, um, of using these things like sanitary cordoning, you know, that, that were preventing people from moving from town to town, um, that also allowed for the kind of uh, pushing for intensified policing um, and militarization within countries like El Salvador. Um, and, you know, uh, this, is, this is kind of, a, I think, a, a key question that, that remains with my book project, but also with new work, I'm really trying to think of how the pandemic is producing a new new masses of poor of, of kind of precarious people who are on the verge of migration you know if not haven't already attempted to migrate already as we see every week with 
you know, caravans being formed in San Pedro Sula or trying to cross into Guatemala and, and so on and so forth. And these, these new masses of, 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 of poor people um, have been impacted, you know, disproportionately by the pandemic and the various kind of improvised protocols that these authoritarian governments like Bukele's have put into, into practice. Um, and, you know, when you think that in relationship to, you know, hurricanes that impacted Central America last year, um, you know, Central America is a kettle that is boiling all the time, always already. Um, and even then, like what I'm, what I'm trying to, to sort of imagine here as forms of resistance is, you know, there are these kinds of incredible transnational social movements that are, that are uh, emerging in light of the pandemic, but that have been going on even before that, right? So, so here I'm thinking about the kind of historical and ancestral struggle of indigenous groups, Afro-descended and black groups, and also the peculiar critique that feminists and, 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 and queer uh, social movements have been making against the authoritarian misogyny of you know, figures like Bukele and what the expansion of militarism and policing really means for the well-being um, of, of women and of, of feminine, feminized communities um, in the country. And so this is, uh, I think, very, very key, right? Um, you know, just some years ago too, uh, environmental defenders and, and land defense organizations won a blanket ban on metallic mining in El Salvador. And this, you know, social movement has also become, you know, that we might call that a new social movement um, in the classical sense, but that has also transformed into, you know, the, the struggle for water has also been a place to make claims on the state to, to sign on to uh, the Escazú Accords that are about, you know, promoting transparency uh, around environmental issues um, and clarifying these kinds of, you know, state violences and disappearances of environmental defenders and activists. And so like there's, there, those are in, in the kind of formal social movement sense, those are some instances uh, that are, that are transnational Central America that are pushing against uh, you know, some of the issues that were raised during the pandemic around water. Um, around hygiene, around who is allowed to sort of live um, in, a, in a clean environment, harm, free from domestic abuse, right? All these kinds of things that were also then exacerbated or even reflected um, in society itself with, with police, with military um, that are now just kind of an, um, uh, uh, an enduring presence um, of the pandemic. Right, and but then I also I also think about um, how there's also new these. I also took your question of new forms of resistance as more connected to to some of the stuff that I'm trying to think through in the book, which are these kinds of prefigurative forms of resistance of kind of politics that might operate on different timescales. Right, I mentioned ancestral movements. I think there's a kind of temporality there. That, I, that is important to, to really think about and how they, those, those kinds of resistance uh, instances really emerge in moments of um, you know, crisis like the, like the global pandemic, right? And these new forms of resistance really fall out of visibility um, because they're so ordinary or they don't kind of register as, a, as, as political forms 
in and of themselves, in, in and of themselves. And so I'm thinking here like indigenous knowledge, right, education, um, these different forms of uh, social conviviality and affinity that were created um, and, and really kind of uh, practiced during, during the pandemic and continue on, right? Those, th there's a genealogy and a history to those ways of relating to one another, those ways of offering help, those ways of cohering a community um, and, uh, and, and kind of being, being familial with one another. Um, and these, you know, while the organized forms of are fascinating and I think are part of what we think of immediately when we have the question of well, what is resistance, right? Um, it's an important, it's, it's important for me too, but it really falls into this dyad of, of coercion and resistance, you know, and I think that that's analytically useful, but in some ways, um, it's exhausted and we need to sort of find new ways to, to think about that, that binary in, in other ways or recast it um, as a new kind of question um, to, to think about ways out of the present you know, crisis in Central America that I think um, you know, sort of hasn't really been, been offered yet. There's no, I, can't, I can't think of a book that sort of attends to you know, Salvadoran or Central American repertoires, you know, um, uh, uh, works that seek to to really uncover uh, incomplete, you know, political projects or community forms that that really are trying to kind of make something out of this reality that they're enveloped in. Um, and so this is this kind of refusal of of normative, you know, pragmatics or uh, subsumptions by capital and things like this that tend to really foreclose our our reading of what really is politics of what can be politics um, is part of the, the kind of epistemic, you know, excavation that, that I'm trying to do, but that I think is also very visible in the moment of the pandemic where, you know, sort of people were really, you know, uh, being incredibly creative with ways that they were, they were trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of fill in where the state had all but abandoned them. Um, and I think that those kinds of sites are going to be incredibly important to have, uh, you know, sort of understood and analyzed because they will become more and more frequent. Um, they're not going away. Um, the kind of grain of sand that, that my project um, is really trying to contribute to Central American studies. Um, and then, you know, one that I hope others are also thinking about, hope build on as well. So we have like one very last question, and I, I'm wondering who should read your book. Like, uh, if if you tell me what's your audience, um, you think this book can obviously is going to be read by the academia, people in Latin American studies, people that that know your work very well, people interested in Central America. But 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 when you're writing, when you're kind of defining the objectives of the book, the main ideas. Uh, are you also trying to expand um, your audience to, to other people? And, and this would be like the very last question and we will finish with that. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of want to answer that question by going back to the question of what is Central American studies and what is the history of that? Um, because, you know, Central American studies really is informed by a sea change in the academy in the late 90s and the early 2000s. 
um, where you know conversations around power, inequality, race, settler colonialism, you know, racial capitalism have been brought to bear on Central America and are continually part of this kind of ongoing intellectual agenda. Um, and there are various kind of cross pollinations in the way that this seeps into the DNA of what Central American studies is, right? And so while I see many scholars, you know, driving a really forceful historical and contemporary analysis of racial empire, settler capitalism, securitization and mobility, ecology, you know, um, uh, I, I see myself in conversation with all of that. And that I think is my interdisciplinary formation um, with an American studies background, you know, that really is trying to be conversant all those tensions and and you know acknowledging their value and their validity to understanding critiquing and offering a framework to think in the present but there is very little work that attempts to offer kinds of uh let's call them you i call them prefigurative in a different moment but sort of ways to think outside of the crisis because the crisis is so saturating it's everywhere you can't turn anywhere in central america without bumping into this uh this kind of disastered world and so for me if we are to study disaster we need to find out you know what are these kinds of minor articulations of how people are resisting this in the place that matters most which is really in their everyday life in the way that they live every day in the way they gather food in the way their kids go to school in the ways that you know um people uh learn from one another in how they're kind of deep going into their own historical and ethical resources or archives in order to make sense of the crisis around them um and this is what i meant about about the exhaustion of kind of the, the capitalist critique, which is again, totally valid and important, but it doesn't really do much for me to think myself uh, outside of it, to think about um, if we are living in the kinds of, you know, I remember this quote by, by Frederick Jameson when, it's, when he said, it's more difficult to imagine the end of capitalism than the end of the world, right? And I think, I, I kind of really think with that question, I take it very seriously, to what Central American Studies is doing, what it can be, um, and, and the questions that I think we need to be asking um, to, to kind of push, to push the kind of envelope and, and, and rethink the kind of humanization uh, of, of our people um, and the kinds of worlds they uh, you know, sort of deserve to live in. Jorge, thank you very much for, for this great conversation. I, I really appreciate that you take the time to speak with me. Um, we were looking forward to read your book, hopefully soon, and we wish you the best luck on your next projects. Thank you, Raul. Muchas gracias.